This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Meredith Bodkus was named editor-in-chief of Working Mother magazine and workingmother.com in December of 2016. Prior to that, she oversaw the relaunch of FirstForWomen.com and Women'sWorld.com as executive editor at Bauer XL Media. She also helped Hearst's Women'sDay.com become an online powerhouse as senior editor and served on the staffs at magazines such as Parenting, Baby Talk, and local editions of Brides, published by Condé Nast. She's also worked at the Knotts National and Regional Magazines, Ladies Home Journal, and websites like whattoexpect.com, and businessweek.com. I talk with Meredith in this episode about the culture change afoot in American companies as they strive to do the right thing by all their employees, working mothers and fathers, LGBT employees, those with disabilities, both visible and invisible, and our military employees. We discuss a new culture at work initiative that Working Mother is producing, that provides an anonymous chat room for employees to share what they wish their organizations were were providing for them. This feedback is then given to policymakers in the hiring organization to inform the development of better, more progressive practices. We also talk about today's father, a different kind of father than in previous generations, one who's demanding such things as gender-neutral leave policies. And we also talk about the National Association for Female Executives listing in Working Mother of the best companies for preparing, promoting, pushing women into executive positions. Working Mother magazine is celebrating 40 years as an important voice for positive change in our businesses and in our society. So now get set to listen to and learn from its editor-in-chief, Meredith Bodkus. Meredith Bodkus, welcome to Work in Life. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you here. Um, and, well, let's, let's start with uh, a bit of the history of Working Mother Media, because some of our listeners may not know. So could you give us like a capsule summary of what Working Mother Media is about, how it started, and what its current mission is? Sure. So we are 40 years old this year. The first edition of Working Mother Magazine came out 1979. Um, And we just celebrated with our 40th anniversary cover with Jennifer Love Hewitt, who also just turned 40, and she's a working mother herself. Okay. And what we've been about since the beginning and what we're still about is culture change, making sure that workers of all stripes Mm -hmm. feel supported in their workplace and they're able to squeeze in the life that they want to live in addition to working their hardest. And how did you get into this? How does this fit with what you're trying to do with your own 
uh, professional and personal life? Well, I'm a mom myself, and mm-hmm. I think that the millennial moms, I do count myself as a millennial, as do many mm-hmm. other people who uh, make those those distinctions in generations. Um, I think the millennial mom is a little bit different from previous generations of moms in that we are expected to be on at work mm-hmm. all the time. We have mm-hmm. no excuse. They know we're attached to our phones. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we're expected to be on for our children all the time and our, our families at, at large. Mm-hmm. So that is why I'm so fascinated and interested in helping other moms in this uh, predicament, but also wonderful and uh triumphant situation. Triumphant, you say? It is. How do you mean? Because when you have those wins at work, for instance, being on your show is a win for me. It's a win for us. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to people about what Mm -hmm. we do. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a win. And coming back to my family and saying, hey, Jeremy, my son who's four years old, Mm -hmm. this is what I did at work today. Mm -hmm. And he gets so excited to hear me talk about what I do and how I help Hmm. people. That's a huge win for me. Hmm. And so you have Jeremy, who's and, four, and... And Zachary, who just turned one. This is my first, wow. my very first night away from him. But wow. But it's, it's good timing and All a good right. reason. Uh, well, uh, so I can see why this is an important issue for you to be focusing on. And and so the, the current mission of a working mother, it really hasn't changed much, even though... The, the sort of market has changed, right? And That's the exactly dynamics of, of our culture have changed with respect to the issues working mothers and fathers face. Well, the biggest change for Working Mother is that we're not just Working Mother magazine. Right. We are a division called Diversity Best Practices, too, where we are working with our member companies, mm-hmm. telling them how they can make sure that their company is going to help all their different kinds of employees, making sure that they are doing the right thing by employees, whether they're whether they identify as LGBTQIA+, whether they are um, they have a, a disability or an invisible disability, where, or their military status, whatever they are, we're making sure that the companies are doing right by them. And we're also Culture at Work, which is our newest division. That, that companies can hire us to tell them, essentially, what their employees wish they were doing. And we do this hmm. very cool thing called voice sessions where it's basically an, an anonymous chat room and we have these wonderful leaders who can ask questions seeing what based on what's going on in the chat room mm-hmm. and getting the difficult-to-get answers out of those employees. And once we have those answers, yeah. they deliver it to the employers and then the employers make changes that will really affect employees the way that they want. Can, can you give an example of that? Sure. So I'm, I'm going to give a theoretical example because they are okay. confidential. Of but course. Let's say there is a, a ride-sharing company, and they keep hearing about sexual harassment. They're, they, they, are, they don't see it happening, but they keep hearing that sexual harassment is happening in their workplace. Well, if they were to commission Culture at Work to do a voice session with them, mm-hmm. they could find out straight from the employees, the employees who haven't felt comfortable talking to the powers that be, Mm -hmm. they could find out about real things that happened to them, Mm -hmm. how it was handled, how they wish it was handled, and then make changes from there. So Hmm. that's just a theoretical, for instance. No, I understand. All right. Well, I I have more questions about that, uh, but I want to back up and and talk with you about a couple of the other initiatives that are – um, central to what you're doing and of interest uh, to to this show and to our listeners. In late last year, Working Mother launched uh, a new ranking, the Best Companies for Dads. Tell us about that. What, what was the inspiration for this? 
Where where was the push coming from? Was it from millennial dads, millennial moms, from companies, from from government agencies, from advocacy groups? What was the motivation? The biggest motivation for me was my own husband, who is a millennial dad, but um, dads in general and the employers that employ them, they want to do right by their dads because mm-hmm. this kind of dad is a very different dad than they've had before. Um, these These dads want the same things that moms have wanted for a long time, but they're Hmm. the first generation of dads to not just want it, but to demand it. And the companies are like, what do we do with these guys? We've never encountered Hmm. men demanding these, you know, paternity leave and flexible hours before. So we really wanted to award and congratulate and recognize the companies that are doing right by these dads as a way to motivate other companies to do the same and as a way to get dads to go to these companies and make changes at their own companies, and in the end, help the moms who still need all that help. Well, it helps everyone. That's right. Uh, if there's greater flexibility and support, not just from the private sector, but from the public sector, which is a topic that I hope we can get to. Definitely. Um, so, so what did you discover in putting together your first Best Companies for Dads roster? The... Companies that are doing it right tend to be in the professional services field. You know, mm. we have Ernst & Young. Um, there's a lot of companies that who do right by moms are also doing right by dads. No surprise there. If you support moms, you are likely to support dads. However... Because you're a company that cares about parents. About people, yeah, about and, the people and, who work for you. Mm-hmm. The whole person, not just the person who comes to work, but the mm-hmm. person who is a mom or dad, the person who has a family, who cares about uh, raising the next generation and raising them well and mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So it was not that surprising to see that those who do very well by moms do very well by dads also. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is surprising is that not all the companies are making gender-neutral leave a thing yet. It's growing. It was 13% of our 100 best companies, and now it's more like 18%. So it's growing, but slowly, and I think it's going to continue to grow. So, excuse me, talk about what that means, gender neutrality. Sure. So right now, we tend to have maternity leave and paternity leave. And maternity leave is for moms who tend to give birth, and it's all paternity leave is for dads who don't tend to give birth. But, <laughs> well, there are some, there are, you know, we can get into that too, but there are people who um, identify as male, and they also are giving birth. So gotcha. um, it is, it's based on how the employer identifies you. So the parental leave, gender neutral mm-hmm. parental leave is we don't care what gender you are. We don't care right. how the child comes into the world because there are still differences in leave times for women who deliver a baby from right. their bodies versus women who hire a, not hire, commit, work with a surrogate right. to bring a baby into this world <coughs> who adopt. Adopt. The, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and fostering. So mm-hmm. what we are seeing is companies moving toward one policy that applies to everyone and however that baby is brought into the world or child doesn't even have to be a baby. That's what we're right. seeing and we support that because So do we. Good, so good. So why personally and what what we're doing here. So um <clears throat> what's the resistance to gender neutrality? The big thing in, is in support for for parental leave and other resources that companies can give to help uh, parents especially in, in the first months 
of uh, the arrival of this new this new human being mm-hmm. in your in your home. The biggest resistance, as usual, is money because making mm. a commitment to helping dads costs money. And if your workplace is predominantly male, and it it likely is predominantly male at the top, for better or for worse, we would say for worse, um, mm-hmm. then it costs a lot of money to do that. And there's also with um, with welcoming children. Through surrogacy, through adoption, mm-hmm. and through mm-hmm. fostering, you can be welcoming multiple children, um, not just one or two per year. So companies fear that their employees will, you know, start adopting left and right. That's not what's going to happen. When you make a commitment, we've we've that actually, would be a good thing, though, wouldn't well, it? It would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. We would love There's to. There's a see. lot of kids out there who could use loving families. Absolutely, but you know, <clears throat> and the private sector can make a real difference here. They absolutely could. But it is a cost. It's certain, it certainly is. And um, they, we are helping them see the business case for putting those resources toward retaining parent employees. Because if you show a parent, we're going to support you at the time you need it most, when you have a screaming newborn at home or when you're traveling perhaps overseas to bring in this newborn you've never met or this you know one-year-old you've never mm-hmm. met, you need your company more than ever. And when a, an employee feels that from the company – they are so much less likely to up and leave. They want to stay at that company. So we are trying to preach that to the companies. This is good. You won't spend a salary and a half to replace this person because you've put in a few thousand dollars to cover them while they're gone. So you, that's part of what you you highlight in the Best Companies for Dads uh, analysis and report, I assume. Yeah, we make we show them the, the clear <clears throat> business case for it. It's, it's good business in addition to doing the right thing. It's a no-brainer to do both. So what else did you discover in uh, in this Best Companies for Dads study? That companies have a long way to go still. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they've recognized, you know, the 100 best companies for working moms recognize that moms need the support because they are still doing the majority of childcare, the majority of housework. But they're not, the companies aren't as savvy in realizing that in order for moms to stop doing the bulk of the second shift work, they have the companies need to step up and allow dads to do that work. And how do they do that? By granting them flexibility, by granting them the ability to transition back into the workforce after they've taken mm-hmm. a leave to be home with family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just the usual benefits that moms expect, you know, the ability to work from home, the ability to leave in the middle of the day to pick up a sick child mm-hmm. from daycare. Dads need that kind of flexibility in terms of where and when. So working moms and working dads are a lot more similar to each other than they were when I was first coming up. And I am, as we discovered in our brief chat before we got on air, uh, a high school classmate of your father's (laughs) at Brooklyn Tech. So shout out to the Brooklyn Tech engineers. Um, so things have changed. And one of the things that, that we've been doing here at Wharton is studying generations of, of Wharton students. And a few years ago, published a book that compared the class of 1992 with the class of 2012 with respect to their attitudes and values about their lives and their careers. And the book was called Baby Bust, New Choices for Men and Women in Work and Family. And it was called that because one of the most uh, important findings was how many fewer men and women are planning to have children. But the reasons for that are different for men and women. 
and 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 the the hopeful note in that sounding like depressing story was that we found that men and women are much more alike today than they were back in the day uh, in terms of what it is that they expect and what they want it, from their marriages or their partnerships with you know their significant others and what they expect in terms of uh, support for child rearing although again half the number of people who uh, expected to have children uh, 20 years ago are, are expecting to, to do the same today. So many fewer people are planning to do this for all kinds of reasons. What you're doing here is, is helping to raise consciousness about what fathers need. So what more, what more is, it should be done? Where do you see coming out of this study is like the, the primary points of intervention for companies? Companies need to make it clear from the get-go when they onboard someone to say, and if you're a parent, here are all the things we offer you officially in policy, and to make sure that those policies are conveyed to all the managers, because just because there's a written policy doesn't mean your manager is going to enact that policy with their own team. Of course. So that's, that's the biggest thing they could do, show them, we are so glad you're here, and we're so glad that you're a dad, because you're a cool guy, and we want to support you raising cool children. So say it's somebody who's, you know, who, who didn't have that benefit coming up, who was, who was in a director or a vice president role, and who's thinking, I didn't have this benefit. Why should I be supporting this young kid who's going to have this benefit that I didn't have? You could see that somebody might think that way. Oh, we've, we've seen it and we've talked to those of, people. <laughs> so how do you help them? We make sure that they see the business case again, but also it's the right thing to do. It's not about you know resenting the people mm -hmm. who come after you. It's, but don't you wish you had that? How much easier would your life have been? How much easier would your partner's life have been had you been afforded those opportunities? Mm -hmm. Put yourself in those in your your former self's shoes and think about that and then it should be an easy answer. I want to give this to people. For instance, um, I helped change the maternity leave policy at my own company while I was already out on maternity leave. So yes, I did get the benefit of the changed policy, but I was still fighting for it even though it wasn't necessarily going to happen while um, I could have taken advantage of it. And it's not just about you. It's about the people who come after mm -hmm. you and bettering society. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Well, yes. I mean, I certainly support that <laughs> idea, and it's a high-minded ideal. At the same time, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get at what the what you know what the difficulties are. Showing in trying, them the cost. Showing them. Showing them the cost. You know, if you we understand that there is a cost to allowing your employees the flexibility, the um, the leave that they want to take, either mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. being home with a new child or caregiving for an elderly parent. We want we know that there is a cost, but it is actually savings. If you put in that investment, you are saving because you don't have to compete for higher talent. You already mm -hmm. have this great person at your disposal and you don't need to hire a recruiter, re-onboard someone. You don't need to take that time to retrain someone. You get to keep the person who is already committed to you and that's worth a lot more than the investment. In the long run. In the long run, yes. In, in the short run, though, it's a cost for me as the hiring manager or the person who's got a team of you know 12 people working for them and 
three of them want to have paternity leave at the same time. That's hard for me. It's hard. But if you find there. Are, so Google does this interesting thing called the bungee program. Are you familiar with it? Go on. It's where they take somebody who wants experience in a different part of the company. And that's how they backfill positions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When somebody's out on leave, if there are three people on leave, there are three people waiting in the wings Makes who are sense. desperate to mm-hmm. get that experience. Now, of course, Google is a much larger organization right. than perhaps the small business owner who is frankly freaked out that he's going to have three people away right. while he needs them most. But it's it's looking at the big picture and we really try to help them see, you know, yes, March is going to be a hard month. Maybe April will too. Mm-hmm. But then when they come back in May, they're sticking around and mm-hmm. you don't have to find somebody new and start from scratch with them and then perhaps give them the time off and then start from scratch again. It's not it's not going to work like that. So it's worth it. For most companies, although it is it requires a leap to be able to see that uh, the you know the cost of turnover, unwanted turnover, are are great. But you're seeing this the vanguard is in professional services, and why is that? I think because they've always been ahead of the curve and they're always competing for talent. They mm-hmm. need that high caliber talent more than other kinds of businesses out there. And the the competition is so stiff. So they are constantly one-upping each other to get that. The McKinsey's of the world, they they know who their competition is and they Mm -hmm. want to hold on to that talent for dear life. And that's why they're the leaders. Well, we know. I mean, I've been tracking this for a long time here, just uh, formally and informally. And you know the the rhetoric uh, of of uh, corporate recruiting presentations here at Wharton and at other schools uh, has has for a long time been we're going to take care of you as a whole person. We care a lot about you. But then you talk about people five years in, and they're uh, that you know that was kind of sales talk mm-hmm. and not quite so genuinely real. Now, is the gap between rhetoric and reality closing in your assessment from uh, what you've been studying? In some ways, yes. In many ways, yes, I should say. In some ways, no, because mm-hmm. until managers are incentivized to follow the policies that the recruiters are pitching to mm-hmm. potential uh, candidates, mm-hmm. then you're going to have that gap. But that gap is closing because there is more of an awareness and you know, thank goodness for social media. If if a company is not doing right by an employee, mm-hmm. you better believe that they are, you know, they're running to Glassdoor or LinkedIn to say, this is what my company promised and this is what's actually happening. So I, I, the gap is closing in many ways. In some ways, it's not closing. There's, It's very difficult to track that managers are following the company ethos in every single way. Mm-hmm. So companies need to get better at that. And once they do, that gap will be so tiny. Well, it's, you know, someone once said that history follows a hearse, and it might be that it takes a generation to see real change because of the, you know, the entrenched ideas about what should be and what the role of fathers and mothers uh, is clearly changing in your generation uh, and, you know, much, much slower in the generation preceding yours, uh, and that as more millennials come into into positions of power, um, those you know the shifts are going to become more rapid, and and we've seen this over the last few years as you know tech companies and financial services, professional services companies, are really falling over each other trying to out paternity leave each other, uh, and provide other kinds of benefits, and that's a great thing to see that competition. Is it 
uh, trickling down, though, if you can call it that, to other sectors of the economy? It's trickling down in many sectors of the economy, but there are certain kinds of jobs that are going to be very difficult to implement generous leave policies. For instance, mm-hmm. in healthcare, you it's very difficult for hospital systems, even though many are on the 100 best companies list, it's very hard for them to say, okay, doctor or okay, nurse, you can take your 12 weeks paid leave and mm-hmm. we'll see you when you get back. It's that's that's very difficult because it's hard to backfill those positions unlike at a very large tech firm. But right. the way we're really seeing change significantly and quickly happening is at the state level. Um States want to get in, not on this game. They know it's the right thing to mm-hmm. do, and they see the consequences of not helping their citizens be home mm-hmm. with their their new babies or their new children. So that's the way that it's trickling down in a you know outside of the private sector. Yeah, the, the public sector support is uh, is really ramping up, and we've we've talked about that a lot on on the show, not just at the state level, but even more so Federally. at the at the municipal level mm. in cities throughout America, um, and it is clearly going to be uh, a central part of uh, platforms for um, you know, candidates for office at all levels in, in, in the, coming, the coming years, um, and that's a wonderful thing to see. But that's, that's the public sector. Um, in terms of you know, small to medium-sized companies, what, what lessons from your study um, can – can those folks take, people who are running small businesses or medium-sized companies or employees in them? The biggest thing for employees, I'd say, is if they're not happy where they are and they're a talented individual, go elsewhere or make Mm -hmm. it known to your company, hey, this is not going to cut it for me and you need me because X, Y, Z. Here's how we can work together to find some Mm -hmm. compromise. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to need. There's this great story that the current president of Unilever tells, and Mm -hmm. she is a woman. She, when she welcomed her second child, she told her then boss, I'm quitting. I'm done. I can't do it all. And her boss said, no, you're not. And, you know, you could you could feel like, hey, boss, let her make her own decisions. But mm-hmm. the, the takeaway for her was, OK, well, here's what I'm going to need if you want to keep me. And he said, OK. And she worked part time and she's now the head of the company. That's an amazing story. I want to pick up on that. And it's actually a good segue to talking about one of the other important studies that you that your magazine and, and uh, organization have published about. Uh, female executives and the best companies for executive women. You were saying before the break, Meredith, about Unilever's uh, new chief, uh, how she was about to quit and uh, was persuaded to stay by a a forward-thinking colleague who helped to figure out how to make that work. Uh, So let's turn to this other study that, uh, that um, is, is an important one that Working Mother uh, publishes, and that is um, on the best companies for executive women. Tell us about that. What's the motivation for that, and uh, what's been the impact of the most recent studies? Sure. So part of Working Mother Media is NAFI, the National Association for Female Executives. And every year, we release the list of the top companies for female executives. And the reason we do that is because we want more women at the top. It is... We all do. (laughs) Thank you. Don't we? (laughs) I hope so. I don't know. If you're listening, is that something that you do support or... 
not? Well, we, hmm. we certainly want qualified women at the top, but we are out there in, mm-hmm. in great numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the number of board directors in the Fortune 500, 1,000, 2,000, if yeah. you look at the CEOs, they are the number is pathetically small, single-digit percentages. And we want to change that. And that's why we highlight the best companies for mm-hmm. uh, executive women. And these are companies that have at least – Two female board members. These are companies that have programs and policies in place to get women to the top. They have sponsoring programs. They have mentoring programs. Hmm. And these are the kinds of opportunities that women need. And not just to talk with other women and learn from other women, but for men who are at the top to say, hey, I see potential in you. I'm going to stick my neck out for you, and I'm, I want to make sure that you get to the top. And if you don't, it reflects badly on me. So when companies mm-hmm. are incentivizing ma- male managers, managers of all kinds, but specifically male managers, to, if they have a reason, a monetary reason, to make right. sure that women are succeeding, they're going to do it. And we want to recognize those companies. And so how do you do that? We look at the policies they have. Mm-hmm. We have um, a lot of different criteria we look at. We, like I said, the number of women on the board, the um, the depth and breadth of mentorship and sponsorship programs, the number of women who are senior managers, the number of women who are top who are in the top twenty percent of earners at the company. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of it's important uh, metrics. Exactly, and um, if you are single digit percentages for all of those, you likely are not going to make our list. So what's what's the trend? The trend is that more companies are giving managers reason to make sure that women are going to succeed. They're mm-hmm. give, they're putting in those policies we talked about before, you know, leave and flexibility because that's what women need to succeed. But in addition to that, they are also making sure that women are learning what they need to learn mm-hmm. to rise to the top. And they're also they do cool things like you know, making sure that each slate of uh, candidates for a position includes women. It includes women of color. It includes diverse candidates because if they're not looking, if they're not ensuring that women are there t- for the start, then they're never going to get to the top because they're not even getting in the door. So where where is the resistance to this move well, the, rooted primarily? And how how can companies, large and small, overcome that? The men at the top um, tend to be resistant because they don't want to lose their jobs. But this isn't about losing oh, their authority, their Absolutely. power. Absolutely, right? yes, exactly. They don't want to be "quote unquote" undermined by someone who doesn't look like them. Um, they are afraid that if the if the women take over, then things will be different, and things will be different. Mm. But they'll be better <laughs> because women have a different way of thinking. People of color have a different way of thinking, and mm-hmm. you know there are lots of studies that show diversity of thought can lead to better bottom lines. There there are some studies that say, well, it's not that it's not quite that easy, but we. Uh, we think that it is. <laughs> so, so that resistance is is uh, is a hard thing to deal with uh, because it's it's a kind of threat to the status quo. Um, what's your What's your sense of what the the corporate world is going to look like ten years from now? It's going to look a lot more like what the country looks like when there are more people of color living in this country as there are. There mm-hmm. are. Um, you know, women, we're everywhere. Companies are going to look more like what the country looks like. And that's a good thing because if your clients are the people in the country, you need people thinking of the people in the country. An example, there, what, there's a story about um, a snack maker 
who challenge their employee resource groups to come up with a great idea. Um, how can we market to new um, to new clients, to mm-hmm. new to new um, customers, rather? Mm-hmm. And they came up with you know one of the I think it was a Latina employee resource group said, well, why don't we have avocado flavored nachos? And it was a huge Ooh, hit. I could go for some of those. I know, right? right? Me too. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> I'm thinking about food. But that kind of thinking isn't mm-hmm. something that would occur to a white male necessarily. Really? Yeah. Well, I like I mean, avocado. <laughs> well, maybe not you, Stu. Because I, <laughs> I have that cosmopolitan taste. Exactly. Right? But um, no, I get your point, And I'm sorry to be obnoxious no, about no. that. No, <laughs> um, <clears throat> no. But 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 my you know off the cuff little stupid remark there, perhaps is is a is a kind of example of the sort of um, defensiveness that Absolutely. is naturally a part of this conversation. Uh, I was just with a group in New York yesterday of uh, chief people officers, chief human resources officers, and diversity and inclusion executives, and th- this was our topic: How do you bring the people who currently uh, dominate the, the the power structure of corporate America, i.e., white men, how do you bring them into the into the story in a way that uh, makes them a part of a larger picture of all of us belonging together to support each other? It's a tough question, but um, men have to get uncomfortable the way we, being women, and Mm -hmm. especially people of color, have been uncomfortable all these years. So we ask them politely, you know, join us, get uncomfortable with us, look at how we do things and recognize that Mm -hmm. it might be different from how you do things. And, you know, the, the good news is that the many of the white men are approaching retirement age, and they mm-hmm. need to realize it's not about them anymore. And wouldn't it be wonderful if they could get someone in their secession line who doesn't look anything like them and who thinks differently and take those people under their wing? And again, it goes back to the business case. Mm-hmm. When you have diversity of thought, your bottom line is going to look a lot better. And isn't that what white men want? <laughs> well, the it's also been shown, there was a really interesting study a number of years ago, uh, not that long ago, within 10 years, of um, <clears throat> looking at the family structure of CEOs and their family, the fr- family friendliness of their policies. You're familiar with the study. Uh, and if the CEO had a daughter, uh, that company was more likely to have policies that were supportive of uh, families, parents, et cetera. Uh, so in some sense, all this is personal, isn't it? Absolutely. When you can see in your own family and the people you care about, when you can see them succeeding because of a, a different way of thinking, of course you're more likely to implement that. And there's also that when you look at the white male CEOs, they tend to have stay-at-home moms as wives. And that's also not what the country is looking like anymore. So we need them to find the people in their lives, whether it's their daughters mm-hmm. or their, their friends even, and see what their struggles are and really talk to them, pick their brain, and then make that emotional connection to the people that report to their company every single day. Mm-hmm. And then you can start thinking a little bit differently. Yeah, I think the the more emotionally real and uh, Im- important to the people who control budgets for the allocation of resources to things like parental leave, the more likely there's going to be a kind of uh, a waking up uh, to the need for more progressive practices. 
Um, but as as you were saying earlier, and as we've discussed on the show a lot, um, advocacy for change uh, is as active, if not more so now, in the public sector. So is Working Mother involved in uh, the kinds of efforts that we're seeing around the country to uh, create uh, a child care and parental support system in our country that starts to come close to approximating what uh, many of our peer countries around the world, particularly in Europe, have. So the way we do that is we talk about what other countries are doing and we write about what the states are starting to do. Uh And we have this exhaustive Q&A, sorry, FAQs about okay. all the different state leave policies and what ha- – That's on, excellent. On workingmother.com. And every time one okay. gets updated, as they just did for 2019, mm-hmm. we update that story. Mm-hmm. And we are, I, I dare say, the number one resource in the country for finding out what the new leave policy is in – at least according to Google, we're the number one in your state. Mm-hmm. And what has resulted from that is we have municipalities – contacting us for advice. For, really? Yes. It's it's great to see. Um, I don't want to reveal the, the cities that have come to, to us, but we're, I'll say we're very close to one right now. And they are looking to Working Mother, our editors, to guide them on how to implement mm. this, to see what the other municipalities and states are doing and what they're doing right, what their pain points are. And we are there for them because we feel great when more parents can take the leave that they need. And not just parents, but families who are responsible for caregiving for elderly relatives or for sick relatives, for sick spouses. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to help on that front however we can. So we take those calls and we take them very seriously. So is Working Mother involved at all in promoting the Healthy Families Act that was just introduced by uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro and Senator Patty Murray? So we're very supportive of it, certainly. And the way we show our support is we inform our readers about it. Mm-hmm. We, um, we also informed our readers about Elizabeth Warren's proposed child care plan. Uh, we haven't um, gone to D.C., Yet, (laughs) but in the in the past, uh, before I got there, yes, editors have gone to D.C. and um, lobbied and advocated for certain policies. We're big proponents of the Family Act that Kirsten Gillibrand uh, put forth. Mm -hmm. We continue to be big proponents of that, and we write about it whenever there's news there, and Mm -hmm. we hope that there's more news soon. (laughs) I hope so too. Uh, I was the the lead signatory on a letter from business school faculty of. In 2015, when that was first introduced to Congress, a letter to Congress that we did with uh, the National Partnership for Working what? Families, uh, Vicki Shabo's yes. organization, and we we got over 200 uh, business school faculty from around the country to write in support of that. And uh, there's a lot more support uh, now for it than there than there was even just a few years ago. So the tide is clearly turning, and that's a wonderful thing to see. What can listeners do to speed the plow of progress in their in their lives and in their communities and in their companies? Make noise and make it the right way. Um, I always say if you're not happy about something at your company and, and they like you and they want to keep you, yes. talk to the powers that be. Identify the people who have the ability to make change. A lot of people think, oh, it's HR. Let me go talk to HR. But they are not the ones who make those. And this was eye-opening for me, too. Uh-huh. They're not the ones who make the decisions. My eyebrows just went up, and that's what, <laughs> that's what yes. Meredith's responding to. So um, I, I was surprised, too. I was surprised uh-huh. to learn that when HR, when you go to HR and say, I want this kind of plan, yeah. their reaction is, 
go to the CEO, go to the, mm-hmm. um, the, the, mm-hmm. the VP of operations or finance. Those are the people who are really the decision makers on how the company is going to spend their money. So sure, you can let HR know that you're doing this. You, you, know, you should definitely go to HR if you don't know what your policy is before you mm-hmm. start asking for things that might already be in place. But really, you need to get meetings with the people who control the budgets and decide right. how they're spending their money. So there are many companies in which parents are coming together and organizing to to create a collective voice for change in these kinds of projects. Join those employee resource groups. And if you don't have an employee resource group, start one. Workingmother.com has a great article on how to start an employee resource group. And if you don't know what an employee resource group is, it's a bunch of employees who get together, kind of like a Mm -hmm. support group, and they talk about whatever they want. They talk about what they wish were happening at the company. And if there is a resource given to that group from the company at large, a sponsor who will actually take their ideas and raise them, run them up the ladder, mm-hmm. that's the best kind of employee resource group. And if you don't have that person there, ask ask for it. See who has who thinks like you. See who's in a similar position to you in terms of their family life or their wants for the company. And just ask them. Make the make the request. The worst they can say is no, and then you have some other people you can you can ask instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there might be ways of making smaller change at a more local level, which which uh, which leads me to the question about people in organizations that don't have this kind of scale and scope, uh, or people who are in you know gig jobs and who hang out at WeWork with three other people trying to get a <laughs> uh, uh, a new a new idea off the ground. What about? the growing number of contract employees, of of gig workers, um, how does what you've been studying speak to them? Well, if we can get the the government to help them out, then that's a win because it is very hard to tell, you know, Mr. 25-year-old startup man, you're going to need to give your your two, three employees leave when they want it. That's a very hard case to make when he's just trying to scrounge around yeah. to get whatever he's got going off the ground. Right. But that's where we say, let's talk to your municipality. Let's talk to the people on the state level mm-hmm. and make the case to them because there are, as you said, a lot more of these contract employees out there. Mm-hmm. And if you want them to be protected the way that the larger companies are protecting their employees – you need the state needs to do something, or at least on the local level, they need to do something to protect those. Or unionize. <laughs> you know, it's it's people right. people forget about unions, but we, we unions still have power, power in numbers. Find those other mm-hmm. small startups that are you know like minded in their progressive ways. Get together and see what you can do collectively to even if you're not formally unionizing, see what you can do together. Work with other com- other small companies to make sure that employees are protected and getting what they need. All right, folks, we, we uh, the phone lines are lighting up here. Um, we don't have that much more time, but uh, I do want to hear from Kelly, who's calling from San Diego. Kelly, thanks for calling Work and Life. Tell tell us what's on your mind. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So I am active duty military female executive mm-hmm. um, working with retention um, of women in the military. And so we're finding that there is a point in time where they've been in um, maybe eight years or so, and they're making that decision between mm-hmm. uh, the family and deployments and going on long times away from their um, spouses. 
as well as whether or not their spouses are going to have jobs wherever they go. So how how do you recommend that we um, increase that retention for our active duty females and help them get to that executive level? Kelly, that is a great question. Thank you so much for calling in and, and for your service. Meredith, what do you think? Thank you for your service. And um, Michelle Obama, when she was in the White House with her husband, as you probably know, one of her big initiatives was to make sure that military spouses who are, say, teachers or who require certifications, that that kind of certification is transferable no matter where they wind up living. So those kinds of programs are so helpful to the spouses so that when you move, the spouse doesn't have to start from scratch, and then the whole family doesn't have to start from scratch in you know, saving and starting over in a new neighborhood and with new jobs. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of policies are so important. And as much as I can make noise on your behalf, I will, because we, you know, our, our military is very important, and we want those women in the military and their spouses and the spouses and um, the men in the military and their spouses to feel supported. So it's all about telling the government what we need for that. And also companies that are incentivized to hire Mm -hmm. uh, veterans, to hire military spouses, those are important too. And there are a lot out there. Check out the Diversity Best Practices Inclusion Index. A lot of those companies have policies that are flexible for um, spouses of military uh, service members. And those those policies and programs are so critical. They are purposely incentivized to hire mm-hmm. spouses who might not have, you know, who might not have even been in the workforce in the past five years. The returnship programs that are out there, making sure that spouses of military, of service members are aware of these opportunities to get back in the workforce when they might have been out taking mm-hmm. care of their family while their spouse was uh, was deployed. Those are the kinds of resources that we just need to let people know about. And uh, Kelly, I'd be happy to make sure that there is a section on workingmother.com with all of those resources so that these spouses will understand that these are available to them. That's awesome. I'm glad you're going to do that. And again, thanks, uh, Kelly, for calling. We only have about a, a minute or two left, Meredith, and I have a couple more questions I want to try to squeeze in here. One very briefly. What what is what are you doing with your studies and your reporting to help overcome the stigma that's associated with men taking time we, for family life and other stuff? We report when we when we decide which companies are the best companies for dads. We're not just looking at who offers paternity leave. We look at who's taking paternity mm-hmm. leave, and that is a critical part of our algorithm because just having the policy is not enough. And there mm-hmm. are several companies who will say, "Hey, I didn't make your list," you know, but we offer eight paid weeks of paternity leave, and then we say, "But only ten percent of men are taking it," mm-hmm. and we turn that back to the companies to say, "You need to." Educate your managers on how they can be supportive to make sure that men feel comfortable taking the really leave. Really doing it. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to, to provide that incentive and that social uh, pressure. Uh, so here's to you. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're doing that. Thanks. Um, the, this is the year of accountability, at least on this show. And so I've been asking all my guests, uh, what, if anything, do you personally do to hold yourself accountable for living and working in accord with your core values? 
so many things because being a hypocrite is my least favorite thing and I've been <laughs> I've been in that position many times and every really? yeah absolutely in the publishing world are you kidding oh okay <laughs> so um, I whenever I feel like ooh what I'm what I'm telling readers or what I'm telling mm-hmm. other our clients when that doesn't jive with what I'm actually doing in my job or what my company provides I say something and it's it's uncomfortable it's say de- something to whom de- oh, well, well in the case of um, maternity leave at my own company mm-hmm. we were not practicing what we preached. And um, through my wonderful manager, she helped me get a meeting with the CEO of our mm. company. And you know, he's a he's a great guy, forward thinking guy, but frankly, our leave policy sucked and it was embarrassing what we wow. were offering. And um, Working Mother? It, well, Working Mother is part of Bonnier Corporation, oh, okay, which gotcha. is a yeah, okay. larger publishing mm-hmm. uh, company. Um, but I sat across from him at nine months pregnant and I told him, I presented him mm-hmm. 10 reasons um, because everything I do is 10 reasons that you should. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I showed him, you know, our competitors were offering more than us. And mm. I told him that it was really uncomfortable and also bad for business for me to. Seriously? Yeah. How could our companies believe in what we're telling them to do if we're not doing it with ourselves? Well, so so speaking up, and that's really what you're where you're asking listeners to, to try to find the courage and support to do as well. Uh, what's, what's the most important message you'd like to leave for our listeners in 15 seconds? Don't be afraid to ask for what you need from whoever you need to get it from. Um, make the case for why they should give it to you, of course. But that fear, once you get over that fear, that's when you could really get what you need. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us, especially here in the studio tonight. What's the best place for listeners to find out more about the great work that you're doing? Please visit WorkingMother.com or subscribe to Working Mother Magazine. You can find out how to subscribe on WorkingMother.com. All right. Uh, Again, really appreciate your being here. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom about what you're doing, your enthusiasm, your energy, your great ideas, and the difference you're making in in really shedding light on – where we need to be going, what's working, and, and, and what's coming next. So thanks again for your, Thank you. your work. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Meredith Bodkus, editor-in-chief at Working Mother, and that it provoked your thinking about what your employer might do, could do, would do, to improve policies and practices that would create a more supportive, more inclusive work environment for you and your, and your colleagues. So can you, as Meredith suggests there at the end of our conversation, can you make some noise? With whom could you, might you, ally or organize with to make your voices for a positive change heard. What would it take for you to do that? What small step in that direction could you take right now? And is there some way that I could help you with that? Get in touch via email, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, 
go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.